fear, gloom, peril, and affliction. What a bright, chipper way to start a sermon Sunday morning, right? All of these concepts are featured in our four lectionary readings for this morning. The psalm, as we heard, names the emotion of fear in the heart of the psalmist. Isaiah names the feeling of gloom among those of Naphtali and Zebulun. Corinthians names the reality of peril for those distant from God. And Matthew names the affliction which plagues the people of Galilee. So fear, gloom, peril, and affliction. Can you relate to any of these? Now, looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, the noun fear is defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Gloom means, similarly, a state of depression, dejection, despondency. Peril means serious and immediate danger arising from a particular situation or activity, and affliction means something that causes pain or suffering. I know that you all know what these words mean, but I think taking the time to flesh them out helps us really feel the weight of them. Fear, gloom, peril, and affliction are realities that the Bible takes very seriously, friends. So this morning, on the third Sunday of Epiphany, we have a slate of readings which begin, which begin with these realities, but which do not stay there. The readings culminate in our fourth and final reading, which is from the Gospel of Matthew, to which I'd like you to turn at this time. So Matthew chapter 4, and the text is verses 12 through 23. Matthew 4, 12 through 23, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version as always which is the version of the Pew Bible in front of you. Uh, So Matthew 4, starting at verse 12, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, 
mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You may be seated. So in Matthew 4, 12 through 23, which as you can see is the text that leads to the Sermon on the Mount, we see how the arrival of Jesus interacts with the four realities I just mentioned. What happens, in other words, to fear, gloom, peril, and affliction when Jesus the Christ shows up? This morning, I want us to name the fear, the gloom, the peril, the affliction, which follow us around this season. I want us to face such feelings, which may be tied to experiences, beliefs, diagnoses, and I want us to let Jesus invade those spaces. Friends, just as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali languished in trauma and darkness and gloom, so do we at times feel stuck. We feel lost in a cloud of despair and depression. But just as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali saw the new dawn of God's kingdom, so are we bathed and warmed in the darkness-defeating light of Christ. So this morning, I want to walk through our fourth lectionary text together, paying careful attention, though, to the other readings which come before it. But before we move any further, friends, let's take a moment to pray. So would you now pray with me? Lord God, we are so grateful for this season of epiphany, a season in which we can face the feelings which haunt us, experiences which trouble us, the suffering that just won't go away, a time when we can face such realities with you rather than ignoring them, and we can welcome the invasive yet illuminating light of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us patience and emotional strength to wade into these waters together, but that you would pull us out and give us your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what I'd like to do before we walk through the verses in Matthew 4 uh, is take a look at each of the three readings which come before it. I'm going to make some comments about the whole passage, uh, but there are some key verses in each text that I'd like us to look at. So the first text that we heard is from Hannah in Psalm 27, our call to worship. And in the ESV, it comes under the heading, The Lord is my light and my salvation, which as you can see is the first line of the psalm, Psalm 27. Unfortunately, the lectionary excises or omits 
verses 2 through 3, which name the realities, the grim, dark experiences facing the psalmist. So the psalm opens with this key verse, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then we read, When evildoers assail me. We read about those uh, who the psalmist is afraid of, who are causing terror in David's heart. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, he writes. My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. A couple years ago, we preached through 1 Samuel, and so... The story of David is relatively fresh in our minds. David was called by God to be king, but that didn't materialize for quite some time. So he was followed around by these bands of troops, and Saul, King Saul, was trying to kill him. So David's life was fraught with treachery, with fear, anxiety most likely. And friends, this psalm in which David says, whom shall I fear, of whom shall I be afraid, is not suggesting that David didn't experience fear. I would argue that he wrote the psalm as a devotional exercise to help him in his fear. This is evidence that fear followed him around all the time. And he needed to remind himself that the Lord is my light and my salvation, my stronghold. You can think of my mighty fortress. This gives us a profound example in Scripture of someone who trusts God naming their fear. Being willing to say, I am afraid, I am anxious, I am worried, yet I am trying to trust the Lord. So we see this reality of of fear, of terror in Psalm 27. And I think it persists through some of our other readings. So let's move now to Isaiah 9, and this is a pretty popular text in the season of Advent. We heard uh, part of this read in our Christmas Eve service, Uh, and as John said, the heading above it is, for to us a child is born. So this text is commonly attributed to to Jesus uh, and is meant to foreshadow his birth. But, But this text refers to the 8th century context in which Assyria in the east, was growing as an empire, and and they were trying to invade Israel from the north. And so northern Israel, which was separate from southern Israel at this time, was facing this imminent threat of invasion and occupation by Assyria. I have a map here, and so you can see, hopefully a little bit, within that red circle, There's that uh, very small yellow mass, and then right above it, the orange. Those are the tribal allotments of Zebulun and Naphtali, which in the first century would be called Galilee or the Galilee region. Now, if Assyria is invading from the north, you can see that those tribes are among the first to be hit by such an onslaught. And so in Isaiah 9... It says that there shall be no gloom for her who is in anguish, anguish. Formerly, or in the former time, 
They were brought into contempt. In verse 2, if you were to read on, it says the people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Some versions read in the shadow of death, literally living near, adjacent to this deathly empire that was almost casting a shadow of death upon this region. So it says, in the former time he brought into contempt this land, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, which is another way of referring to this region, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. In this text, Isaiah is is naming the experience of anguish that came with the invasion of Assyria into the northern kingdom. He's not evading that reality. He's naming it. He's facing it. But he's also saying that into that situation of darkness, a light, a great light would come. And this, in Isaiah, refers to the northern kingdom's deliverance from Assyrian power and their regaining of independence once again. So that whole situation of being invaded and then regaining independence was realized to some extent in antiquity. But as we'll see, Matthew in his gospel comments on it in another way. So the final text that I'd like to mention uh, comes from 1 Corinthians, and sometimes the epistle reading in the lectionary is hard to connect with some of the other readings. But as you can see, if you have it open, verses 10 through 17 come under this heading, Divisions in the Church. And so Paul talks about these divisions that stem from loyalty to different leaders, And then in verse 18, we read, however, or for, the word of the cross, the word which Paul preaches, the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing or in peril, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we get this discussion of God making foolish the wisdom of the world, Christ's crucifixion being a stumbling block to many, and so forth. The language of peril here, though, those who are perishing, is, I think, significant. Paul is naming the fact that those who exist apart from God, who reject the gospel of Jesus, face peril. Peril, immediate danger, imminent danger, destruction. Perilous existence. However, those who are being saved, which is interesting language that we could talk about some other time, experience the gospel as the dynamic power of God, not as foolishness. I think here the Apostle Paul names the fact that apart from Jesus, human beings experience peril, affliction, gloom, without light and hope and sight. But those who receive the gospel as God's word experience it as salvation, the dawning of new light. But with all of those texts in mind, I'd like to turn now to our gospel text in Matthew chapter 4. And this comes right after sort of the account from last week from John, but even before that, um, early in the gospel of Matthew in which Jesus is baptized and begins or starts to 
do his ministry in the gospel, which is what Epiphany is all about. Right after this will come the Sermon on the Mount, and so next week we'll look at the famous Beatitudes, which introduce that sermon. Now, if you look at verse 12 in Matthew 4, you'll see that the context is quite hot, quite dangerous. It says, Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. And the, the verb in Greek is not a common one for being arrested. It's when he heard that John had been handed over, kind of violently seized and handed over like an object. When he heard that John had been handed over, Jesus withdrew withdrew to Galilee. That word withdrew was used before when Joseph and Mary, they went to Egypt and they come back north, and Joseph heard that Herod's son was reigning, and so out of fear he withdrew. He withdrew to another place. I don't think Jesus is afraid, per se. However, he has ministry to do. And he knows that, that the situation is dangerous now that John has been imprisoned. So Jesus knows that if he does his ministry in public for all to see, like John, he too would soon be thrown into prison. So he withdrew into the region of Galilee and stated another way, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, a specific city in Galilee. This is the territory, Matthew says, of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, it seems that Jesus went to Galilee, to Capernaum, uh, to withdraw from the public eye, to uh, have an opportunity to minister before he, too, would be executed. But Matthew says that Jesus' relocation here was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And when I say fulfilled, friends, remember those sermons in Isaiah when I talked about fulfillment, not as predicting something that wouldn't happen until the future, but an entire situation that was realized functioning as a metaphor, as the bag of apples half empty, referring to something much greater in the future. So he quotes from Isaiah 9, which we just read, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, and here we have a different version of Isaiah, the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So this whole situation involving Assyria invading Israel, taking them captive, occupying their land, them languishing in hopelessness and darkness, and then them being freed, that whole situation is compared with Jesus' arrival in Galilee and his preaching, his teaching, and his healing. It says in verse 17 that from that time onwards, from then on, Jesus began to publicly preach, saying, repent, turn, change the way that you're living, the way that you're thinking, because the, the kingdom of heaven, the, the heavenly empire, this is not a place, friends, this is a, a new order, a political order. This is a new era in which God is reigning on the earth. This kingdom, this heavenly empire, the reign of God is here, it's at hand. 
Jesus' arrival then in Galilee and the beginnings of his ministry there is cast as the fulfillment of this massive political liberation of Israel in the 6th century BCE. After this, we get this interesting vignette about Jesus' calling of the first disciples. And as you'll notice, this differs quite a bit from John's account, which we looked at last week. I don't have time to go through all of the differences, um, but these texts, I do not think, contradict each other, and there are ways to harmonize them, but it's clear that each gospel writer has different interests and different purposes in writing. I think it is significant, friends, that Jesus' calling of the first disciples is placed here in the Gospel of Matthew. Part and parcel of this new kingdom, this new reign of God, was the gathering of a group of citizens to inhabit the new kingdom. So Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and sees, we'll see, four Galilean fishermen of the peasant class. And we don't get all this complex language of question and answer. What do you seek? Come and see, and they stay with them. All we get is, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, and they follow him. Matthew's account, as opposed to John's, is terse. It's straightforward. It's more black and white. I think this is meant to emphasize Jesus' authority as the new king who commands his subjects. Immediately they leave their livelihood, they leave their, their family, and they follow him. They become his disciples. I truly think, friends, that Jesus' kingdom ministry, his building of the kingdom of God, which is treated as the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, is constituted by the, the gathering of people, the gathering of followers. Jesus is not a lone ranger, a prophet on his own, but his, his whole mission is to draw people into a new community, okay? Now, lastly, the lectionary includes verse 23. I don't know why it doesn't include these three verses, 23 through 25, but it includes verse 23. So Jesus has arrived in Galilee. He's, he's proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom. He's begun to gather some citizens for that kingdom. And now it says that he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, uh, aligning himself with institutional Judaism, with established religion, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but also healing every disease, and every affliction among the people. And if you read on, it says that people heard about this and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those who have seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. The arrival of God's new reign, this heavenly empire, involves the gathering of underprivileged peasant fishermen as the first citizens. It involves the 
targeted healing of people who were cast out in society and who were afflicted by disease. It involves the dawning of a new light in the darkness. Now, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, tradition has it, uh, were the first of the tribal allotments to be taken captive by Assyria. They were also, however, the first to be released from such captivity. Jesus' arrival in Galilee, this region, in the first century, is cast as a light which dawns in the darkness. A light which signifies release from fear, gloom, peril, and affliction. Now, I've spoken quite openly uh, to you all about the depression that I experienced in North Carolina several years ago. Well, as it turns out, uh, Maine gets pretty dark in the winter. And so my depression, at least some form of it, has managed to return. Darkness is an apt image to describe how I sometimes feel. Kind of like a cloud, a fog, or a heavy mist lay over my mind or my heart. Now, it took a while for me to see this for what it was. In the end, I asked for help, and I am so glad that I did. Along with being dark, though, in the winter, Maine is also known for something else. As the easternmost state in the country, Maine is the first state to see the sunrise. Darkness, friends, can take the form of depression, despondency, sure. But it can also take the form of uncertainty about one's future, about one's relationships, one's faith. It can be fatigue, exhaustion from the frantic hustle that happens out there. But in Matthew 4, we read that on these kinds of people, people living in thick darkness, people who are exhausted, disillusioned, uncertain, on these kinds of people, a light, a new light has shone. Friends, Jesus Christ is the light that shines in our darkness. He's the first sign of dawn after night. He is. His arrival in Galilee, his, his proclaiming of a new kingdom, his healing the diseased and afflicted is the first glimpse of sun after a long, long night. Try to imagine living in captivity, in exile or bondage. Perhaps you don't have to imagine that. And think of being the first ones to see the light of freedom, the light of salvation. That is what Jesus is doing here. And when I say here, 
I mean here. Let me close with this. Jan Richardson is a writer of poems and blessings. And after being married for not even four years, her husband had what they thought was a routine surgery. And after complications, he died weeks later. And so she writes this beautiful collection of blessings, but in the midst of this grief and this pain. And one of those blessings is called How the Light Comes. It was actually read by Millie Stedman at our Christmas Eve service. I cannot tell you how the light comes. What I know is that it is more ancient than imagining that it travels across an astounding expanse to reach us, that it loves searching out what is hidden, what is lost, what is forgotten or in peril or in pain. I cannot tell you how the light comes, but that it does, that it will, that it works its way into the deepest dark that enfolds you, And so may we, this day, turn ourselves toward it. May we lift our faces to let it find us. May we open and open more and open still to the blessed light that comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your light. We still experience darkness, palpable, tangible darkness, Lord. Yet you shine as a light in that place. You are the man of sorrows, Lord, we forget that. But you died. And tradition says you descended to hell. On the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, You lived in darkness. You were there. And yet on Sunday, the light came. Help us, Lord, to not ignore the darkness, but to face it as you did. And to be open to the blessed light of Christ that always comes. In Jesus' name, amen.